Today we're going to talk appropriately about the subject of Halloween, and I call this the Christian and the culture, all right? Um, it's every seven years we have the opportunity for October the 31st, Halloween, to be on Sunday. And I really like it when it is on Sunday because Christians, uh, people of faith, church-going people, even people not of faith who observe people of faith have all kinds of questions and uh, various uh, sort of mental gymnastics that they go through with Halloween. And especially if you have children and you're raising children in the house, it becomes this thing of, well, what do we do with this? And how do we reconcile this with what we see in the Bible? And do we do this? Do we not do this? And, you know, then you start going on the internet to see what other people think. And you see all kinds of stuff on the internet about Halloween. I've been watching videos in preparation for this, and my goodness, the, the wide variety and scope of opinion on the subject of Halloween from Christian people is, is outrageous on the one hand, uh, amusing on the other. I'm not sure, like there's no consistency of thought on it. Unfortunately, people have very, very varying, differing uh, opinions on it. But I want to use this as an example for you uh, as to how to interact with something in culture. So I call this the Christian and the culture. So I want to take you on a little journey here uh, about the subject of Halloween, which will get us into deeper things into the scripture as well. Okay, so first and foremost, um, Halloween is a cultural expression. I'll use that term. It's a cultural expression. Why do I say this? Because the normal uh, explanation of Halloween, and you'll find this most Everywhere, There's only a few obscure uh, uh, sites that actually do the historical work and quote source material that's credible on the subject of Halloween. But the typical narrative, and we all know that word narrative now, uh, we use that word all the time, the narrative of these, these political people, the narrative of these political people, the narrative of the, the, about the vaccine, about the not vaccine. We all are smart now. We all use this word narrative so capably. Uh, but the typical narrative about Halloween is that uh, it's an ancient uh, Celtic pagan holiday. And the ancient Celtic people believed you know, 2,000 years ago when they lived around the area of, of Ireland and France and so on, what we would call that today, that they practiced all of this paganism and that on October the 31st, they believed that the line between the dead and the living was more blurred and they did all these pagan sacrifices and their druids tried to predict the future. And so this is the sort of thing that has passed through the ages. And lo and behold, we're, you know, we, we're, we're doing all of these things. We don't even realize that we're commemorating this, this pagan thing. And that's the typical narrative that we hear. Uh, you will find it almost everywhere except from some historians who actually do the work and who actually go back into the source material and find out the facts. OK? 
Can I just tell you, just you, you, you get this kind of for free today. Uh, when you're going back and looking at something in history, what you do is you go and you look for the source of the history. And you get as close as you can to that source, and you find out everything you can about that source. That's what we do with the New Testament. That's what we do with the Bible. Because the Bible is, all the things that we read about in the Bible, at least when it comes to the narrative parts, telling a story, all of those things are historical. So we have to go back and say, well, is this history credible? What documents do we have? What evidence do we have that comes from the source? Well, when you actually go to the source and you try and figure out what in the world is this Halloween thing, you find that this whole thing of the ancient Celts and their supposed worship on that day, and this day they called it, it transliterated into English, uh, Samhain or Samhain, uh, it's pronounced sometimes, and it meant end of summer. And there's no trace of this. There's no trace of the word. There's no trace of the practice from the ancient Celtic people themselves. Zero. You will not find it in their documentation at all, at all, at all. Now, the modern-day uh, witches and Satanists and these people would love you to think that that's the history of it, but when you go back and you look at the actual source material, you will see nothing, zero, from the Celtic people about this at all. In fact, the Celtic people didn't even observe October the 31st. Their, day was, their year was, or month was like 29 days long because they went by a lunar cycle. So this business of, oh, you know, we've just, this is a terrible day. You know, it's the day of evil and it's the devil's day and it's all these things because these ancient Celtic people and there's zero source documentation about this. Uh, when you go back and you actually look at just the facts, you do not see it from the people themselves. They have been saddled with this reputation, but we do not see it in the documentation anywhere. This, this, this word Samhain, or, which means summer's end, it only appears when you get uh, into the Middle Ages. And that's so 1200, 1100, 1200 A.D., that far, okay? You only, that's when you first start seeing the word, and there's no occultic references associated with it. All we see is that, well, it was the end of summer, and they observed or celebrated somehow the end of summer. We don't see anything occultic attached to it. On the other hand, when we inspect this whole thing and we look again and we start thinking and thinking critically about it from as early as the second century, so 150 years, 200 years after the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, the church would honor those who were martyred for the faith. Those who the, the Roman Empire had killed, they would honor those people, and over time, they would, they would start to do that on a particular day, and then as, as early as the 8th century, some say the 7th century, uh, what we call today the 1st of November was chosen as the date by the church to honor those who had died for the faith. This was well before we even see the word Samhain appear in the ancient, or not even ancient, in the Celtic literature in like the Middle Ages. Are you with me so far? 
So this is what we see when we look at the evidence, when we look at the source material itself. This is what we see, all right? Again, the modern-day Wicca people and Satanists and these folks would love me not to say this, but if you look at the actual documentation itself, this is, in fact, what you see. And over time, the night before the 1st of November would be called All Hallows' Eve because they hallowed the people, revered the people who had died. And so on the eve of the day of November the 1st, the church would call this All Hallows' Eve. All, All Hallows' Eve. The, the line or the narrative that's typically said is that, well, the church saw this pagan thing from even as far as, you know, 2,000 years ago, and they tried to Christianize the holiday by making this thing up to counteract what was going on. Historically speaking, when you look at the actual source material, the reverse is true. The church was honoring those who had passed away for their faith as early as the second century. This Samhain business doesn't even appear until the Middle Ages. You say, well, where did all of this stuff come from? I'll tell you in a moment. But before we get there, one of the most significant events in the history of the church, some say the most significant event in church history, took place on Halloween over 500 years ago, just over 500 years ago. Do any of you know what that event is? Wow, blank error. Uh, Okay, I'll give you a couple of hints. Uh, uh, It starts with a P. Nope. No, no. So about 500 years ago, uh, certainly in the modern world, uh, this would be the most significant event in church history, and it took place on Halloween, intentionally. P-R-O? P-R-O-T? Protestant? Yeah, this, the, the, the schism, as he calls it, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation began on Halloween. In the year 1517, uh, Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the door of that church in where was Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, and even though some scholars dispute that he actually did that, We know for a fact that he dated the letter that he sent off to the authorities of the church October the 31st in the year 1517. And the reason why Luther did it on that day is because he knew that the churches would be packed the next day for people on uh, the day where they would honor these people, what they called All Saints Day. And they would honor those who had passed away for their faith. So Luther knew what he was doing, and uh, Luther uh, started what would be the Protestant Reformation at that time. It took until about 1534 when there was a schism because of the the king who didn't, uh, for lack of better words, didn't like his wife at the time. She couldn't bear him a son, so he went and, uh, and forced a divorce 
had another lady expecting uh, and forced a divorce of his existing wife, which the Pope disagreed with. And he was essentially excommunicated from the Catholic Church and said, well, forget it. I'm the king. We're going to start a whole new thing. So in a political sense, that's when the, the Reformation began. But in a theological sense, which is more important for us, it's, the, it's on Halloween in the year 1517. Uh, some people in some churches actually call today Reformation Day. And they say Happy Reformation Day instead of Happy Halloween. Uh, but regardless of what you want to say, that's the history. And there you see uh, Martin Luther cleverly carved into a pumpkin. Uh, but it's a very significant event that not a lot of Christians realize took place on Halloween in the year 1517. You say, well, then where did all of this stuff come from? Where did all of this, uh, you know, macabre thing with the death and the ghosts and the goblins and all of these things and the, uh, the horrific stuff and the sort of celebration of this kind of thing, where did this all come from? Well, where a lot of things come from, the good old U.S. of A., uh, a lot of different things come from there, but there's a heavy influence that we can trace in the source material from the 1800s that influenced the day toward its present cultural expression. The first jack-o'-lantern in print we see in 1898, costumes and scaring people and so on, we had, uh, bobbing for apples we see in 1904, and the first documented trick-or-treating uh, event took place in 1927 in Alberta. That's the first documented uh, time that we see it, okay? And we see a huge influence uh, that has led up to the, the, the present moment that we see on October the 31st. So that's the real, that's the real documentation behind what we talk about when we say Halloween and October the 31st and all this. Why do I say this? Because this is a cultural expression. This is not the day of evil. This is not the day of darkness. This is not the day when the line between the living and the dead is blurred. It is not that. This is the day that the Lord has made. So says the scripture. And it, there's nothing about today that makes it any different from any other day except what you decide to do with it. And so in terms of what you decide to do today or what you decide not to do today, it's up to you. But all I, all I would say to you is think. Think about what you're doing. Think about truth and reality and fact, not all these narratives that you've been told or that you've listened to, that you just assume that, okay, this is the real deal about it, and so now I've got to really decide, you know, what am I going to do what you want to do or what you don't want to do, but think. And I, I, I fear that people in churches, but even people not in churches, have lost their ability to think critically about something. Think critically about something that is taking place in culture. Think critically about it. So if you want to take your kids uh, trick-or-treating, fine. You, I'll say it clearly. You are not sinning by doing that. No, you are not opening a door for the devil to curse you for four generations because you decide to dress your kid up as a Marvel character and go walk around in your neighborhood and get free candy. 
You can do what you want. Do it with a clean conscience as unto God, but do what you want to do. Do not do what you don't. It's up to you. Some families will say we avoid it completely. We don't even want to talk about it. Fine, that's up to you. There's no problem with that. Some people, they do a little bit in between. It's up to you. You can put a jack-o'-lantern on your house if you want to. It's your decision. But what you do, you do out of your own conscience. And it's a matter between you and your conscience and you and God. One thing you can't do, however, is enforce your particular posture on a cultural thing towards somebody else. So the person who says, we avoid it, we don't touch it, we stay away from it, it's evil, we don't touch any of it, that's fine, that's, a good, that's, that's up to you, that's fine. You're not doing anything wrong, that's fine. But don't go up to someone who goes trick-or-treating and puts a jack-o'-lantern on their house and tell them that they're sinning and that they're going to get cursed for four generations. It's your view, it's your opinion on a cultural issue. And those of you, you have freedom to do whatever you want to do. You do whatever you want to do. You carve the jack-o'-lanterns. You go trick-or-treating. You do the whole shebang. Fine. But don't go up to someone who doesn't do that and say, well, you, you're too scared to do this or you're too religious to do that. No. Both of you can do what you want as unto the Lord with a good conscience and leave it at that. It's a cultural thing. It's the day that the Lord has made do what you want or do not do or do what you don't want. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Make your decision, but think about what you're doing and think critically about what you're doing. Lesson number two, the biblical presentation of the supernatural and, and the occult is very different than what we see in the culture. So when we, when we see something in culture that is in the scripture for us clearly and we see it addressed, uh, some subject or some cultural expression, and we see the thing addressed in the scripture, you are always, almost always going to find that the scripture is quite different on the subject than the way that the culture portrays it. So you can walk... 200, 300 meters away from here, and there's a, there's a Halloween uh, store depot, you know, right next to uh, our second home, Winner's Home Sense. How many of you, Winner's Home Sense is your second home? Oh, yeah, somebody put their hand up. So uh, right next to there, there's a Halloween store, Halloween depot, right? So you go and you walk into that, that store. That is like an amusement park. Uh, ride. I mean, it is elaborate. You walk into that store and the lights are dark and the smoke is, you know, fuming in your face and you got things jumping out at you and you got yelling and screaming and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's, it, it, I just go in there to see if I'm going to get scared or shocked or not. You know, and I walk around and, and observe, the place is packed with people full of people and probably going to be a zoo today because all the people are scrambling to get all of their Halloween costumes and paraphernalia and all of that. It's going to look like the Grinch was there and nothing's going to be left except a few little wires and tacks on the wall, which is what they want because they want to liquidate their stock, right? Halloween's very lucrative for retail. 
Uh, but in any case, I'm walking around and looking at these, all, of the, all of these elaborate displays. And uh, something really caught my eye. It was quite, quite intense. You know, you have this, this kind of robot or animatronic deal. You know, the thing is like six feet high, eight feet high, seven feet, something like that. And you got this, uh, this really scary looking, you know, witch kind of dude. And he's, he's holding a little kid like by the throat and stealing the soul of the kid. Wow, this is really, really gross, you know, it's a very intense, and, they, they, and it talks, and you see the smoke come out of the little kid's mouth, and it's supposed to be the soul coming out of his mouth. I said, wow, that is really something else, you know? I mean, what do you, what do, you do with that? Like, is that real? Folks, the way that the Bible portrays the supernatural and the occultic world is extremely different. Let me give you some, some uh, comparisons for you here, okay? Uh, and, and I grew up in the, in the 1970s, 1980s, and I was a total horror movie junkie. Like, I've seen every horror movie from the 70s and the 80s, uh, dozens of times at least, at least dozens. So, you know, uh, Michael Myers and Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees and like these characters were uh, in my sleep all the time, okay? The, I, I was an addict of, of the horror genre, okay? And unfortunately for me, it got me into other things uh, and dabbling in things related to the occult that uh, start getting dangerous. Uh, but anyway, let me tell you what culture says, and let me tell you what Bible says when it comes to the portrayal of the occult. When I say occult, that's the, that's the pursuit of knowledge and information outside of God. So when someone says, I want to know my future, but I don't want to know it from God. I want to know about this. I want to know about that. But I'm intentionally looking at another source of knowledge than God that is trafficking in the occult, okay? The, the, the Bible most certainly acknowledges the existence of the devil and of the occultic world. Uh, even in the Old Testament, you see very, very strong prohibitions in the law of Moses against this type of thing because it was all over the place there. The worship of whatever was all over the place in the time of the, of the birth of the nation of Israel and the growth and the taking of the promised land and so on. It was everywhere. So you see very strong prohibitions about this. But it's fascinating to me to see the way that this is portrayed in the culture and the way it's portrayed in the Bible. On the left-hand side, in the culture... The devil or Satan or whatever being you want to use the title for is portrayed as all-powerful, omnipotent. You can't stop him. I mean, Michael Myers has been around for 45 years, and he's still not dead yet. They're still making movies about Michael Myers. They're pray, playing in this movie theater, maybe not this room, but in this movie theater making hundreds of millions of dollars. The portrayal of evil is that evil is omnipotent. It cannot be stopped. It's all powerful. It's equally as powerful as any God is. It's unstoppable. You cannot stop it. It's all knowing. 
the, the portrayal of devil and demons and all these things in the modern culture and in any of these horror movies that you see is that they know everything. They know everything about you. They're watching you. They're, in, they're under your bed. They're in your closet. They're in your shower. They're everywhere. They're, it's like they're omniscient. They know everything. They're unstoppable. No matter what you do, they keep on coming back. And it's like, it's like, it's, it's, they're like God. The way that it's portrayed is that the devil is deified. He is an equal to God. And fear triumphs over faith. Fear is always stronger. It's in the background and it's always triumphing over faith. And in these movies, most of the time when you see Christianity portrayed, the priests or the pastors or whatever are weaklings. And Christianity is portrayed as weak and fear reigns and fear dominates and fear is powerful. That's the whole genre of the thing when you look at the culture. I was very, very surprised when I came to Christ um, and saw when I read through the Bible about what was my favorite subject, the occult. I was very surprised at how stupid I was. I was very surprised at how uh, the Bible has certainly portrayed it and pictured it, but in a very opposite way than the way the culture does. So in the Bible, the devil, the demonic world, the occult is of limited power. There are constraints on the world of the occult and on the devil himself, and those constraints are put there by God. The knowledge base is limited, so the devil does not know everything. He does not know what you're thinking. He's not in your shower or under your, under your bed at night, or, you know, he, he's not doing those things. His knowledge is limited. He is a defeated being. We see statements in the New Testament that show that when Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, it was like a blow to the powers of darkness and a, a crushing of the powers of darkness. We see that the cross is power over the demonic world. Fascinating. We see that the, the, the devil is portrayed as finite. He is not infinite. He is not all-powerful. He is not all-knowing. He is not all-present. He had a beginning, and he will have an end. And we see faith in the Bible triumphing over fear. So people don't have to live in fear. People can walk by faith. You don't see Jesus scared of the devil. You don't see Paul scared of the devil. You don't see Peter scared of the devil. You don't see James scared of the devil. You don't see John scared of the devil. These people who wrote the New Testament, these people who experienced these things, they don't seem to have much fear at all of this being. Uh, but they understand who that being is and they operate in faith. It's fascinating to observe when you read the pages of the Bible. But what do you see in the culture? You see the total opposite. You see that the deification 
of this being uh, the devil. So I would argue, and this is uh, maybe a bit of a taboo thought, but I have experience, years of experience, uh, believing the cultural depiction of this. I would argue, and I think the scripture would make a good case for this, the most common activity of the devil. You want to know what he's up to today. It is not Halloween. This is not the devil's day. It's a lot of smoke and mirrors is what it is, but this is not the primary activity of the devil today. It's not in so-called generational curses. This has become a phrase tossed around in evangelical circles that is a radical gymnastic view of a couple of passages in the Old Testament, and they try to teach this business of, well, you know, you could be cursed up to the fourth generation by the sins of your daddy or your granddaddy or your great-granddaddy if they were a witch and a warlock and all of this stuff. That's why you're having problems in life, and you need to cancel out all of these curses and on and on and on the rhetoric goes. You see no evidence whatsoever of this in the New Testament. Zero. Never does Paul teach that you have to break generational curses. He doesn't even use the term. Never do the apostles teach this. Again, we have to jerk around with some passages from the Old Testament and twist them around to try to make them say this, and people live in fear of these things. Friends, you are responsible for your own actions. You face the consequences for your own actions. It's not your father's fault. It's not your grandfather's fault. It's not your great-grandfather's fault. It's not your mason cousin. It's not your, your, your second generation aunt who you think practice witchcraft. So what? She'll be responsible for her own decisions, and you will too. This is what the scripture teaches so it's not in that, it's not even in exorcisms. I've participated in two, I would say, two genuinely real, sometimes the word exorcism is used, I don't really like the word, but I've seen it twice in 20 years of pastoral ministry and 10 other years as a layman, I've seen it twice, once as a layman, once as a pastor. The one time as a layman was here in Montreal, in downtown Montreal. The second time was as a pastor in, I think it was Cumanayagua in uh, Cuba, little little town in Cuba where I saw it. So two times I have in my life. And let me tell you, it's extremely different than what you see depicted in the popular culture. It's a lot more like what you see in the Bible. But it's very different than what you see in the popular culture. I'm going to tell you the one that you should fear is God. The one that you should fear is Jesus. The one you should not fear is Satan. You should not be afraid of him. If you are a follower of Jesus and you are an authentic follower of Jesus, you should not be afraid of the powers of darkness. But you should fear the Lord because he's the one who's in charge. He's the boss. You, you start playing around with your relationship with God. You should fear him, but you shouldn't fear uh, the enemy. So yes, those things happen. Yes, people goof around in all of these areas and dabble in the occult like I did. So I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, it's really easy, okay? Don't, don't pursue 
knowledge outside of God. So don't fool around with Ouija boards. Don't go get hypnotized. Don't play the horoscope. You know, don't go see the fortune teller. Don't mess around with tarot cards. All of those things, okay, those, you're being foolish if you dabble around with those things because those things can open a door. Yes, indeed they can. But that is not the common activity of the devil today. It's not, those are, uh, are dramatic moments, those are usually climactic moments to something else that the devil is active in today. It's not Satanism. I've had the privilege, I would say, I'd call it a privilege, of dialoguing with a couple of Satanists over the last couple of years online as they've seen events in our church and left some lewd comments and so on, and that allowed me to enter into dialogue with them. Modern-day Satanism, modern-day Satanists don't even believe in the devil. The devil for them is a symbol of rebellion against authority. Uh, yes, indeed, there are some who actually worship the supernatural being and so on. But the common Satanism today is about pride, independence, individualism. This, this is the common Satanic view today. People who practice so-called witchcraft and call themselves witches and all of this, they tend to be environmentalists, they tend to be individualists, and they tend to say, we will not do what people say to us. We will make our own decisions and we will decide what we want to do. And they use Satan as a symbol for that, but they, most of them reject the supernatural altogether. Some don't, yes, it's true, but most don't. The most common activity of the devil today in culture in this world is the same as it's always been according to the Bible, and that's deception. His intent is to deceive. And that's why all of the popular culture portrays him as God, because that's deceptive. It paints a picture that deifies the powers of darkness that is False. It's blatantly false. That's because it's deception. So yes, I do believe that the, the, the horror genre and the occultic uh, portrayal in the culture is a lie. It's deception. And a lot of Christians buy it. A lot of Christians are so scared of Satan. They're hiding. The, the devil's in the drum. The devil's under the table. The devil's in the guitar. The, the devil's everywhere. He's in the, he's in the, the giving machine. He's in, he must be in the room here because of all the movies that are played here. And they live in such fear. I mean, my goodness, like that's some scary devil you believe in. That's not the devil that's portrayed in the scripture you see. And the, the devil that's portrayed in the scripture is a deceiver. He is a liar. So this is the, the, the phrase that Jesus used, John chapter 8, verse 44. He says, he is a liar and the father of lies. When he lies, he speaks his native language. When you live your life around lies and around deception and based on things that are not true, when your narrative is false, when that inner talk in your head is filled with lies, you have been deceived. And the reason why the, the enemy wants to deceive people is to render them powerless and unable to be an influence on other people. His primary goal is to stop the propagation of the gospel. 
The only people who can propagate the gospel are people who have experienced the gospel. And so what he does is shut those people up. You want a really good depiction of this? Read C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, and you will see how this works. This is a fiction, of course, but you will see it played out. It is in deception that the enemy tries to work, and it's deception on all fronts. If you live your life by lies, you believe false things about yourself, you believe false things about God, you believe false things about the world, you believe false things about relationships, you believe false things about how you're supposed to treat people, you believe all those things over and over and over and over and over and over again, you have become the object of the activity of the enemy. You have. Because his intention is to lie to you so you will be incapable of influencing people for the cause of Christ. This is his intention. He wants to break relationships. He wants to cause havoc in families. He wants to cause pain and trial and difficulty and trauma, particularly in the area of relationships. The most famous passage that we use in churches about this whole subject is from Ephesians chapter 6, and we can quote the passage, some of us by memory, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power and put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And then he goes into this armor that you are supposed to put on in your daily life. But this passage has a context, and I've mentioned this several times before over the last five years in this church because I believe it is a missed truth by Christian people, by people of faith. This passage has a context, and the context is relationships, it's in relationships. It starts in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then it talks about the marriage relationship and how the husband and the wife are to submit to one another. It talks about children and parents, and it talks about submission there. It talks about how, how parents should treat their children, how children should treat their parents. It talks about employees and employers and how they should treat one another. And then it says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Implication. When you have fractured relationships, when you have a, a, a relationship where a, a, a husband and a wife were in a close relationship and there starts to develop this bitterness and this animosity and this full-blown hatred, when you see children and their parents and it turns into animosity and bitterness and full-blown hatred, when you see it in the marketplace, when you see it in your school, when you see it in your family, when you see it in your neighborhood, when you see it in the whole culture, what are you seeing? You're seeing the activity of the enemy. That's his primary playground is to get you on deception so that he can fracture relationships, so that he can destroy your ability to influence other people in the principles of the kingdom of God. And he's extremely good at it. 
extremely good at it. But that's where he is most active. Uh, there's an interesting uh, uh, story in Acts chapter uh, 19 in the city of Ephesus, which is a city inundated with the occult uh, when you read the chapter, and you see that there are some folks in Ephesus who are operating in deception, and it costs them. And they have believed a certain mantra about how to cast out demons, and they try to use this mantra. They do not know Jesus personally. They do not have an authentic faith in Jesus. But you see in Acts chapter 19, verses uh, 10 and 11, you have a priest there. Um, I think it's 10 and 11. Oh, it's not 10 and 11. But you have a priest there. He's in Acts chapter 19. Maybe it's a little bit later. Uh, and uh, you have a priest there, and his name is Skeva, and he has seven sons. And these seven sons uh, run around trying to cast devils out of people, and they're trying to imitate Jesus. And Jesus did this quite frequently and quite effortlessly. And you see that they go up to this one guy, and they say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches come out of him. They're trying to use some sort of a magic formula to operate in this area. Uh, do you know what happens to them? You get one guy who beats them all up, strips them naked, and leaves them bleeding, saying to them, well, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but you I don't know. And one guy beats up seven, strips them, and leaves them there. Why? Because those seven did not know the truth. They operated in deception. They believed one thing, and they got caught, and they got burned in it. And that's what happens when you start believing lies, lies about God, lies, any kind of lie repeated over and over and over and over again in your head. You become the playground for the activity of the enemy. And I don't know how far to go with this because we have, can I just say, we have a glaring example with the pandemic and vaccines. Folks, the amount of sewage that I have seen about this material, the amount of information that is being regurgitated by Christian people who know nothing of biology and never took a biology course in their life as if they now are experts in epidemiology making these videos that are ghastly from a factual point of view. And people believe these lies over and over and over and over again. And for some of them, it's costing them their marriage. I saw uh, there, there are relationships that are stressed, marriages that are breaking up because, you know, the husband doesn't want the wife to take the vaccine because if she takes the vaccine, she's going to shed the, the vaccine or the virus to him and it's going to alter his DNA. Folks, think, think critically. God gave you a mind so that you can use it. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, yes, with all your soul, yes, with all your strength, yes, but with all your mind. What has happened to our minds? We're out of our minds. 
We need to learn to think critically. Don't drink the Kool-Aid of lies that the enemy wants to offer you. In all areas of life, he has lies prepared for you. He has lies about who you are as a person. He has lies about where you came from. He has lies about what you will be. He has lies about your close people who you are closely related to in life. He has lies loaded and ready for you to process. What are you going to do with those things? You will think critically. And this is what God wants, I believe, of his people uh, on Halloween of all years, 2021, the year of deception. My goodness, you, you turn on, you go online, and you will see it all, all, millions and millions of views of all kinds of things, all kinds of subjects. Friends, when you're getting your information from, from there, be very critical of what you are reading and what you are watching and what you are listening to. It doesn't matter if the person has a PhD. It doesn't matter if they have little letters after their name. It does not matter. Think critically about what you are processing. Because if you process lies in your life over and over and over and over again, they will render you ineffective and powerless as a person. And you will live a paralyzed life. And when you live that way, that is not the life that God wants you to live. He wants you to live as an influence for him in this world. No matter what you're doing, no matter where you are at, he wants to use you to be an influence for him. The enemy wants the reverse. And the way that he will do that to you is to lie to you. So yes, all of the other stuff does happen. Indeed, it does happen. But that, those things are the result of a process that takes place. And that process starts with deception. I'd like Viano and Sean, if they would come, and I'm just going to pray for you as we finish up today on Halloween 2021. And I would remind you, uh, we started the Alpha Course online on Wednesday night, had a great first uh, run at about 10 or 11 different uh, households logged in there. It was really nice to see. Uh, but we're going to continue uh, this week and the subject, the big question that we're dealing with this week, talk about truth or lie. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? When we look into the scripture, you're welcome to join us. The same Zoom link that we've been using for uh, months on Wednesday nights and also on uh, next week on Sunday morning, we'll start a new series called What Jesus Believed. Jesus believed many things and taught many things and taught truth. Well, what did he teach and what did he actually believe? We will look at that uh, starting next week. You gentlemen can go ahead and play at your uh, as you wish. Father, I thank you for each person who's in the room today, those who are watching online. Lord, uh, I pray that you would help us to be those who, uh, in this time and in this generation, with all of the information that we have at our disposal, with all of the voices that speak to us uh, through all sorts of media, uh, that we would be people who think critically with the abilities and gifts that you have given to us. 
that we would be people who would be lovers of truth, that we would be people who seek you, who seek your word, who seek what you have to say to us, that we would be those who would uh, detect and be able to discern falsehood from truth. I pray for people, God, and, and they realize that some of the things that they've been walking in and some of the choices that they have made are the result of false things, are the result of lies that they have absorbed in their lives. I pray that you would help them, God, and that by your Spirit you would be able to course correct people as they walk on their journey to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you, everyone, and uh, I will be floating around in the foyer or in the front. You can always give. Uh, at the table which will be available there remember to pick up your kids in screen 11 enjoy the rest of your wet day today god bless you everyone